Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today I'm joined by two professionals who have certainly distinguished themselves in the estate and lifestyle management space. They've worked with many family offices over the years, and some of their clients represent some of the wealthiest families on the planet. Uh, they certainly have a, some unique insights uh, into this space, and I dare say pioneers uh, within the estate management world. Uh, we'll be talking about the evolution uh, of the estate and lifestyle management industry, uh, how Judy and Anne and, and, and work uh, to meet expectations for the principals there, talk about staffing considerations, uh, project management best practices, um, some ideas around property maintenance, um, and then what changes they both see to this industry in a post-COVID-19 world. So let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Ann Lyons. Ann, uh, give us a little uh, background on your experience in this space and then how you got started in it. Okay. Well, thank you, um, Eddie, and thank you for having us here. So I started my career actually focused on commercial and healthcare design and construction. I think evidence that people come to this personal service space from all sorts of different backgrounds. I did that for nearly 15 years and then was recruited by Vulcan Inc., the family office of Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft. And during my nearly 10 years there, I oversaw development, interior design, construction, as well as maintenance of an international portfolio of um, the principal's residential lifestyle holdings. Uh, learned an awful lot while I was there. And in 2010, after many years of extensive travel and a desire to also stay at home a bit, um, I saw a need in the market really that serves ultra high net worth families for a consultancy that would combine both the rigor of corporate experience with the insights that I had gained working close in for a family of significant wealth. And, and thus Tapestry was launched. And I'm happy to say that we have celebrated our 10th anniversary this year and we're honored in 2019 with the Family Wealth Report Award for Best Service Provider in their property and household category. Well, thanks, Anne. And uh, my next guest is Judy Berder Rule. Judy, give us a quick snapshot of your background and, and some insights into how you got into the space as well. Great. I'd be happy to do that. So I, like many in this niche space, have a former background in driving operations of luxury hotels, private clubs, and top-tier food and beverage programs. Uh, prior to joining Tapestry Associates in 2012, I served as the Senior Director of Properties for Watermark Estate Management Services, which is the family office for Bill and Melinda Gates. And in that role, I was responsible for all facets of daily estate operations, including finance and human resources. I am also the founder of JBR Event Management, a boutique consulting firm which provides complete event production management and logistics consultancy to ultra high net worth clients and their related business and philanthropic organizations. And in my role as Tapestry's president, I leverage that unique private family office experience to lead our operations division, where we focus on delivering property operations and personal services consultancy for individuals and families of significant wealth and their trusted advisors. Thanks, Judy. All cool. right. Uh, let's get started uh, with some questions here. You know, Anne, uh, I, from your perspective, you know, the estate and lifestyle management uh, for wealthy families uh, is an 
part of the family office industry that, you know, the general public observes, you know, sometimes they understand and maybe that understanding is through uh, distorted lenses. You know, first thing comes to my mind is Downton Abbey, you know, you know, and I'm sure there are others, but how has the estate and lifestyle management industry evolved in your professional career? Well, I think one of the things that we have seen is is both an increase in an understanding of the of the sort of the professionalizing of the service industry. There's a real recognition now, I think, of the diverse skill sets that are needed for people to be successful, especially at um, what would be considered the sort of executive level of estate management, chief of staff, um, those sorts of positions, um, really are are requiring much more so in the in the realm of business rigor, for example, than maybe perhaps um, was required in the past. I think one of the more interesting changes that we've seen in the last, say, five to 10 years has been sort of uh, the spectrum going the complete other way from Downton Abbey and um, people wanting to have a much smaller footprint of staff in their homes. There's been a growing comfort uh, of, of new wealth, of having service providers in their life, but still they want to keep that footprint fairly, you know, fairly small. I think we've, we've seen this particularly on the West Coast, perhaps because the wealth here tends to be more first and second generation. And, you know, they've been reluctant, sometimes I would say even embarrassed uh, to embrace the idea of having, having help. And so they've wanted to keep that, that footprint really small and to take a more hands-on approach to managing their lifestyle. And I think an outcome of that is something that's been very interesting, which is seeing staffing positions that are now more of a blended role. So an example of that might be, and we've seen a lot of interest in this um, recently in the last couple of years, where positions like a household manager whose duties might incorporate childcare, food preparation, some um, personal assistance responsibility, as well as you know perhaps overseeing of, of uh, the homes, housekeepers, estate managers who in the past, um, primary training might have been in, in personal service delivery, are oftentimes now expected to have an equal amount of training in facility management and are expected to, um, you know, roll up their sleeves and, and perform handyman tasks. So there's a lot of, of hybridizing of, of household service roles. And then I think there's also the impact of social media, and that's increased personal privacy risks for families when they're starting to introduce staff into their lives. Um, and this is especially true when staff turns over. So I think this has led to an awareness, both, both by families themselves, as well as their, um, their circle of trusted advisors that recruiting personal staff needs to be taken as seriously in their personal life as they, as they take it in their business life. So Judy, one of the things that Anne mentioned was this hybrid structure mm -hmm. around some of these services. I think one of the hallmarks of being a family office uh, staff or executive uh, uh, is that you have to wear multiple hats, uh, regardless mm -hmm. of what you're doing for the family. Uh, you know, you know the industry that you're in. The issues can vary widely between different families. You know, whether you're mm -hmm. working on travel or managing homes or doing sporting events or car collections, whatever it may be. I mean, how do you fit all of these different pieces uh, together, given the complexity and the delivery expectations of of these principles? Well, it, it's a great question, and obviously we've built an entire consultancy around answering that question because it is a complex one. Um, one of the things that we 
we've both experienced, I think I speak for both Anne and I when I say personally, as well as, um, you know, in our former lives, as well as the work that we do with families today, is that risk factor of, of overstretching valued staff beyond their level of expertise because they are so trusted or have been so successful delivering results that as families' lives become more complex, it's it's a natural tendency to say, well, you know, this particular individual has been so successful at supporting me in this space, surely they might be able to, and they're certainly very willing to assist in another. And we can often see the signs of that sort of strain, given how disparate the subject matter expertise is required. You mentioned a few of those um, sort of core areas of management that are required. It can scan the gamut from extremely complex technology that runs these very complex smart homes. Uh, there can be very significant and complex collections that require care, um, very sophisticated facilities equipment that might challenge even an extremely seasoned engineer. Um, and then there's all of the personal service delivery, as you mentioned, the travel and the coordination of personal schedules. Our experience tells us to really look at the families, what we would refer to as an ecosystem of their physical assets and their personal service needs. And really, and this I think will be a reoccurring theme um, during our conversation today, it's this need to take a really objective view and assessment of the family's priorities, a very honest analysis of what skills the family office and the personal services team possess, and an ability to be really honest about where those gaps are, such that you can look for additional training opportunities or outsourcing particular tasks, needs, to other individuals who might be best positioned to provide them. It's really, I think, taking that shining a really bright light on those topics within the viewpoint of a family's priorities that helps answer that complex question. It's a big one and we'll likely touch on it in several different ways during our conversation today. Sure. So Judy, you know, in terms of the ecosystem that you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, how can you, how can family offices, you know, better understand uh, the, the different preferences between the family members and given that they could be so different between generations and, and geography spread and, and, you know, certainly sophistication of operations that are there, how can they better understand those preferences and work with a group uh, like you that, that uh, to, uh, to, to uh, better understand that? Well, I think one, this is something Anne often says, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to it, that families aren't cast in amber. <laughs> they evolve. Um, one of the things that we see often is that teams in, in attempting, whether this is sort of what we refer to as the other side of the family office, which would be this the, the providers that, that really step up in the residential portfolios to help assist them very families very personally versus the traditional uh, seats in a family office that might handle finance, HR, philanthropy, tax, legal, all of that, is 
those two groups have unique perspective and skills that are often surprisingly not cross-leveraged. <laughs> In other words, the, the personal services team may feel that, those, that their expertise or their exposure is very personal and thus would be inappropriate to share with, for example, these other members of the family office who, on the flip side, have extreme insight and exposure to other facets of a family's life, whether that be financial, legal, etc. And that what we often see is this lack of sharing those lessons learned between those connected but often physically separated uh, parties that would best serve the family. So, for example, the family office may be very clear on how to best serve up a cost-benefit analysis, for example, if a family was considering switching insurance providers or they were looking at new wealth management opportunities. Um, and they may have developed through the years a really great way of synthesizing information and queuing it up to the family so that they can make a quick and educated decision. On the flip side, the personal services teams may be trusted with, you know, very complex design and construction process, uh, projects or making recommendations about bringing in quite costly or complex service providers. They may not be leveraging the skills of the family office to the degree that they that they might in order to similarly service that family. Um, and we often see those sorts of disconnects are where rubs occur. Family might not understand why something works so smoothly in one area in terms of queuing up information and not in another. Anne, is there anything you think I missed in that that would help answer that question? No, I think you, I think you got yeah. it. Yeah, okay. So I think it sounds like part of it comes down to communication uh, among those different parties. Have you seen anything that's been, you know, effective uh, to, to get groups like that to work together? Well, you know, yes. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's, it's having a canned, giving oneself permission and or asking the family in a formal way, can we have a more formal uh, best practice sharing that occurs. I mean, one of the things we see the most is a failure to ask principles. There's lots of urban legends that sort of get embedded in these or in these organizations. Um, oh, you can never ask that question. Or, uh, nope, they're not going to take the time. And we are often uh, so uh, pleasantly um, surprised at how engaged. Uh, families' principles will be if they understand that just by simply gift, giving formal permission, if you will, to have those conversations um, really opens up, a, can very much open up a dialogue. And so sometimes it's as simple as setting routine uh, gatherings, if you will, and have to be in person, they can certainly be virtual. But, you know, even if it's just once a month that the, that the core family office team is connecting with the personal services team to discuss trends, uh, sensitivities, what, what are uh, 
pain points that one group may be hearing that the other is not aware of being expressed. So again, it's, it's not being afraid to ask questions, periodically clarifying assumptions. Um, we've seen some interesting exercises where teams will simply put down the top three, as I said, urban legends, if you will, about how um, a family would like to have services provi provided and then sharing that with the family and anticipating a feedback loop. Um, it's pretty amazing how many times families will say, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was never our intention. We would much prefer that, um, you know, that topic or that issue be handled in a certain way. Again, it's opening up that, that dialogue. And, and, and I'm not being, um, I should say that I'm, I'm cognizant that that sounds all very easy. It isn't always easy to have an audience um, or to connect groups, but boy, when it happens, it can be really cathartic for an organization. No, that, that, that's a really interesting point. I think part of it, what you mentioned, it sounds like a little bit of bureaucracy goes a long way and, yeah. and, and kind of putting those thing, elements together. I think that's very interesting. It's a really great well, and, inside and, baseball to that. Well, it's interesting too, Anne. Um, I don't mean to tell this story for you, but Anne will often say that you know when we reflect on our our former lives, that you know often we were being within these very complex organizations that were very much cloaked in non disclosure agreements, and and where our you know foremost goal is to protect the privacy of the principles that we were often best at keeping secrets from ourselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we didn't necessarily do our, our team a service by, um, or the by being exactly, exactly. So that's very interesting. Um, you know, when, when, with that context in mind and you're, and you're talking about different staff members, you know, what are some good considerations uh, that you should that folks should have top of mind when they're sourcing and hiring staff uh, to support mm -hmm. you know these types of estate and lifestyle management issues? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I I'm particularly passionate about about the answer to that. Um, you know, first and foremost, um, what we encourage our clients uh, to do, and this was a hard won lesson um, over years of sort of, you know, stepping up to bat and trying to get it right, um, but to really start with a pre-search assessment. Um, oftentimes, families and frankly, the, the trusted recruiting partners or family office teams that support them get into a bit of an order-taking um, mindset. Okay, we had a head housekeeper whose role was X. That individual is no longer with the family. It's time to look for a uh, replacement, whip out the, you know, posting description that may have been crafted for that job 10 years ago. It's recycled, off you go. And, and often we're not seeing... Um, organizations or their families hitting the pause button, if you will, to say, is this really the position that would best serve our needs today? Um, and if it is, what are the key traits that sort of, that sort of uh, 
driving benchmarks of success and are those really clearly defined? I mean, really, we feel the first point of failure in these sorts of um, staffing uh, engagements is a failure to really clearly define the role and to really define the service experience and cultural fit that's going to make um, a successful placement so that whomever is going out to market to look for these individuals um, is really has the right roadmap. And the second um, item is, and this is a this can be sometimes a painful question uh, to have to ask, but looking honestly at whether principals or their organizations are applying the same business rigor to the search and placement process in their personal life that they would in their professional world. Um, you know, often we'll support um, ultra high net worth uh, families who have obviously had a very successful uh, business and professional life. and we often have to have some <laughs> candid conversations about the fact that the process by which they have grown this personal organization, sometimes it's very small, other times it's more complex, but often doesn't have the same thought and business rigor that were they to be bringing in a new trader or a new you know, lawyer to the firm. Um, and that can be quite an aha moment how often uh, private service staff are hired because someone wrote on the back of a business card the name of someone that they knew. Um, it, it's very interesting to see that differentiation between the professional and uh, the personal. Um, so I would say uh, those are two core uh, features. The other would be to really think proactively about uh, how safety, security, and confidentiality is going to be handled during the search process and how that's going to factor into recruiting candidates. Um, that's obviously often of paramount concern, but again, um, we, t we often see a lack of discipline in how families Families, I should say the representatives of families, whether that's uh, a team member that's coordinating a search or whether that's a recruiting partner who's been engaged, we're often surprised at how often there hasn't been a conversation about at which point a family's name will be revealed, for example. Um, what sorts of confidentiality agreements are executed prior to that information being disclosed? Um, you know, all of those steps so that again because you think about it when you're looking for new staff you can be talking to you know well hopefully not hundreds but often you know tens of of candidates and and as part of that process often stories are being told to try and articulate the needs and if if folks are not really thoughtful, it's, it's a huge opportunity for um, more information than the family would ever desire um, might be expressed. And I'm um, sorry, this is a juicy one. I have a lot of thoughts on no. this. The last two, the last two would be um, that the process should really include a uh, plan for integrating and measuring performance once the individual, the successful candidate is selected. So being very thoughtful about 
putting into place a plan to onboard that new individual into the organization and what are the matrix for measuring their success and course correcting before it becomes a problem where uh, you know it's reached a point where other either the employee um, is not satisfied and leaves or the family has lost confidence that they that the person that they were so hopeful was going to be a good fit would in fact um, uh, meet their mark so again you know thinking not getting caught up in the moment of, okay, this is great, we've got this person, we're excited about them, and just sort of throw them in, but to rather really be thoughtful about how they're going to integrate um, into the family's organization. So I will leave it at that. We could go on that one for quite a while, but uh, no, no, there, no, there's and, some good topics there. No, certainly. And, 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 you know, Judy brought up some interesting factors around, you know, selection of staff. Mm-hmm. What about the selection factors of bringing those staff on in-house versus, you know, outsourcing uh, uh, different functions and, and different elements uh, of estate management for a family office. How, how, what are some good factors that you would have family offices consider there? Well, I would, I would say first and foremost, it's usually not either or. It's often, um, more often than not, it's a combo platter. It's, again, it's a hybrid. And we will advise families to... <clears throat> Um, first of all, hire for a job. Is it something that has recurring responsibilities as opposed to it just being, you know, a task? Um, and what's the proximity to the family for that p- particular position? If it's a if it's a position that has close in recurring proximity to the family, I think we would advise from a security and safety perspective, as well as from a consistency of service delivery perspective, that they consider hiring somebody um, as a as a direct hire in house. If it's something. Um, that could be more traditionally taken care of by an outsourced service provider, then that's where we would say, you know, maybe take a look at, at a third party. The other thing is with, um, particularly with estate and property management, oftentimes you will have, and, and this makes just good common sense, the family's primary residence will have a staff that's more, usually more comprised of direct hires because that's where the family is spending the majority of their, their time. The remote properties might have a combination of both. Some may be um, taken care of or, or overseen by a local property management company that perhaps is over, is managed by the estate manager of their primary residence. Um, and others may have a combination of maybe there's a, a property manager that's hired directly by the family, and then that person gets search support from a local property management company. So it's really a matter of assessing the actual particular circumstance for which the, the family is hiring. The other factor that we like uh, family offices and families themselves to take into account is what we call the value triangle. And by that, we mean what's the family's tolerance for cost? What's their tolerance for um, having, you know, individuals in close proximity to their lives? And what are their service, service expectations? Because just like any value triangle, all of those things impact, impact the other. Um, so that, that is, a, is a key consideration. You know, somebody may have very, very high service expectations, um, but not want to, you know, pay what those expectations um, would require in terms of the marketplace. Or um, maybe their service expectation is that um, 
let's take housekeeping, for example, the house is cleaned, you know, every day between, you know, this hour and, and that hour, and it's a very large property. Well, one person isn't going to be able to do that. Several people are, or you're going to have to outsource a team that can come in very quickly, and that has a cost associated with it. So those are factors that we have um, people take into account. Um, you know, it, one of the other things that we see is oftentimes as property portfolios grow, as they often do organically, all of a sudden managing that portfolio of homes becomes a job in and of itself, and it really erodes somebody's enjoyment of them. And I think when when that starts to happen, when families find that um, they're they're having to spend too much of their time managing their holdings, if they're finding that service requests or maintenance is falling behind, if properties aren't aren't really ready when they want to use them, if they aren't enjoying them anymore, then it's time to to bring somebody in. Um, and that again can be somebody who's a direct hire or um, might be somebody who's offering surge support who comes in, does a diagnostic assessment and can help a owner or their, their personal service team understand what's required to get back on track. And the other area that is, is something to consider and that oftentimes generates the need for more third-party service providers is a personal transition that may mm -hmm. be anything from um, the family is, is desirous of another acquisition uh, in their property portfolio. And it may be just the bridge too far for what is currently a, a really high-functioning personal service staff. Um, but just adding that one more uh, property to the portfolio may stretch them beyond, um, you know, their their ability to to perform as well as they have. Um, that that particular in that particular instance, outsourcing can be a, a tremendous benefit, and being able to stretch that personal service team until the family can really get its arms around the impact of that particular acquisition to the overall um, portfolio. Similarly, you know, properties might be. Um, divested, and in that case, um, you can augment your personal service staff with the various um, subject matter experts that are going to be required. Whether it's a, a, an estate sale manager, if it's a if it's a disposition of an asset, asset or um, real estate broker, um, any any number of of other subject matter experts can be brought in for those particular specific instances. I, I think that's an interesting point, Anne, in terms of the the changes in those kind of inflection points for a family and and where that that might be a, a decision around that and many other things that a family office is responsible for. So that that's that's an interesting point there. Now, one of the areas that you, you and, and and Judy have talked about, Anne, is around project management. Um, you know, within this ecosystem of, of the estate. I mean, there's a, certainly a tremendous, you know, large uh, scope of responsibilities of, you know, handling large estates. And, and, and certainly with properties, you, you mentioned in one particular case, Anne, how uh, the, the risks to those properties if they're not maintained uh, correctly. So how do families effectively, you know, perform these complex project management uh you know, projects in this kind of an estate management ecosystem well? Well, I think one of the things, um, you know, from a, is, is to communicate, first of all. As Judy had mentioned earlier, a lot of times 
I think this is true often on both the, the family um, office side as well as the personal service staff side. Uh, you know, families are, are sort of cast in amber and the idea is that, you know, they don't, they don't change, they don't evolve um, when in fact they're constantly evolving and reacting. So what was true one day isn't necessarily going to be true the next. So always better to um, ask questions rather than, as, than assume incorrectly. And as a principal, um, to the degree that they're comfortable being able to be more transparent with their expectations, that's obviously going to, to go a long way in making sure that their, um, their estates are, are managed up to their expectations. Um, one of the things, and Judy touched on this also um, earlier, is we advise um, families and family office staff, personal staff, to conduct regular situational assessments in areas that make up um, that family's personal ecosystem or areas that are of priority to them because they really do a great job in identifying strengths and opportunities for where things need to be improved and, and, and areas of risk to the family and their property. Because one of the things that we, um, we have, have seen, and in fact, this was sort of the generation of, of our company's name is that, you know, an unaddressed weakness in one area will ultimately impact others. So, you know, by tapestry, we mean sort of the interweaving of all of these different aspects of somebody's life. And so, for example, you know, if you have poorly integrated technology systems, well, what happens? Well, they can, they undermine communications, they compromise security, and ultimately can put a family's, you know, safety and property at risk. Um, Deferred maintenance we know can lead to unnecessary insurance claims, whether that's for safety or property damage. And then a family goes to use a property and it's and it's not owner ready. Um, and careless or or inadequate staffing um, will result in turnover. Sometimes there's personal theft, and certainly there's there's the risk that the the family's security and is endangered. So. Um, we like to see families really and, and their personal staff um, focus on and institute a discipline for documenting processes and procedures um, and keeping those up to date. And one of the things that that will do is ensure that tribal knowledge is constantly being captured. That will go a long way into disputing some of the urban legends. Um, it also um, assures the family that should a staff member leave either for um, emergent personal reasons or for uh, because of a disciplinary action that the management of their estate is not going to you know suffer a serious gap because of that person's departure the other area is or another area is cross training and understanding where you can leverage your staff um, and having good backup systems in place to ensure consistent and continuous standards of delivery. Because you're dealing with families, these, these jobs are oftentimes 24-7, 365, and yet we know that's um, somewhat unrealistic expectation for most people. And so understanding what it is that you need to do to be able to have people cover for each other and make sure that, um, you know, that management is consistently being addressed and provided is, is something we think is really, is really important. And one that we um, think is a, is a perfect opportunity for personal staff and the family office staff to really join forces to um, improve service delivery to their principals on both sides of, of, of the office is following sound business practices. Now, as Judy said before, we, 
there's a tendency to sometimes be an order taker and to and in always wanting to deliver you know as quickly as possible as well as possible people it's some, sometimes like fire set ready <laughs> people don't take <laughs> the pause that's necessary to really understand what's being asked of them and so being able to take what's being asked do a quick analysis of it, perhaps um, talk to the family office staff, maybe build a really good business case around that request. How much is that, does the principal understand how, the impact of that request? Is it going to cost more than they really expect? Well, it might, but they, they deserve the opportunity to say yes or no, I still want to go forward with that. So I think making sure that there's good communication between the family office and personal service staff, being able for both of those parties to leverage their specific expertise and to really be able to bring an owner good information is one of the best ways that um, you can you can effectively project manage uh, an estate. Uh, thanks, Anne. You know, as part of that project management discussion, do do you or your team ever work with um, family offices to you know getting involved in these construction? projects or property acquisition, you know, discussions to, to head off potential problems in the future? We do. I often, I often consider that um, helping avoid the first remodel. <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on new acquisitions, uh, oftentimes we may work with the family, their family office, their broker, um, by helping them assess how well a property will fit with their lifestyle. So um, they may be looking at a property. This oftentimes happens with um, uh, secondary properties, maybe their vacation homes, for example. So, and oftentimes can be bought uh, very organically, maybe on a romantic whim. They've been someplace, really enjoyed it, but now would like to have, um, you know, the amenities of actually owning something as opposed to being in a hotel in that particular location. So we will help them assess, well, if what they're looking at, does that really fit your lifestyle or is it going to require significant alterations? And if it does require significant alterations, what is the time and time frame and cost factor due to their expectations for use? Um, I think that's a, that's a, an important one. We also work with um, wealth advisors and, the, and family offices in helping determine the operating costs of a property. We often say it's a lot easier to buy something than it is to hold it. And a lot of times families won't necessarily understand what the hold cost is of, of a property, especially if it's very different from what um, they're used to, whether it's larger, say, for example, a new build. If they're building something that's significantly larger than what they have currently, do they fully understand what it's going to cost to take care of that? Um, home, both from a from an internal upkeep, housekeeping perspective, as well as a as a grounds um, and uh, you know external maintenance. And then we also look at at when designs are on the boards. We'll we offer um, an operational overview of like what's the back of the house design um, look like, which oftentimes architects and designers are dealing primarily with the principal. They aren't dealing with the principal staff, and yet you know, how that staff operates on the backside of the house very much impacts um, an owner's experience of, um, you know, service delivery and how they're enjoying their environment. So things like if it, if there is significant um, grounds and gardens, will those be tended in-house or will those 
um, responsibilities be outsourced? Is there adequate storage for maintenance vehicles? What's the property access? Are the trucks going to be parked in the driveway in front of the house or is there is there a rear entrance that they can use? So um, those are all ways that we can um, provide uh, advice to either the family themselves or to the family office and and just even helping them understand the kinds of questions that that should be asked in helping a family assess a new acquisition or a new build um, something that we um, we think is an important thing to do uh, thanks uh, Anne. Um, you know Judy and we, we've talked now about hiring of staff we've talked about you know insourcing or outsourcing particular functions you know what about the the you know, the time when we have to talk about turnover. I mean, how do you, how do you keep staff incentivized uh, to stay and, and for retention? And, you know, eventually people do leave or, you know, for other opportunities or retire, uh, you know, how can, you know, I'm sure this has come up with you and sure. where families feel where they can't, that this person is irreplaceable. How do you deal right. with that? Well, it, and, and you've really hit on such, this is one of the more, emotive uh, topics that we help families with. Um, you know, it can be um, really paralyzing, you know, when there is valued team members who have been with a family for, you know, decades. Um, and it's hard some, and, and generally, if you imagine that that's happened, the principles have often, you know, they're aging along as well. And so the, the reliance that can occur um, increases as the years go by. And we see this often um, when, you know, families will sort of wake up at night and go, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, Fred is no longer, is no longer with us. Um, and so we, you know, this is a fundamental uh, issue that many, many family offices struggle with. Our perspective on this is to really address transition head on um, and to really embrace an environment where, um, where there is a out loud discussion about the fact that there is going to be evolution at some point to encourage teams to participate in legacy planning, um, creating that culture where those sorts of skills are celebrated and not viewed as threatening. And the way we would encourage families to go about that is first and foremost, really, again, you know, it's, keep I keep sort of beating the assessment drum, but it's it's really an exercise worth undertaking it's to sort of look at the playing field and the talents of the individuals, you know, in all sorts of positions, personal assistant, executive assistant, um, you know, personal chef, any number of those sorts of roles and really look at and engage in an open conversation with those individuals. You know, what does, you know, what is, you know, your life arc look like? Are you going to be interested in doing this job this way? And, you know, in another 5, 10, 15 years. So many of these positions really do top out, if you will. You may have a head of housekeeping who 
is incredibly valuable to the family. But that role isn't necessarily going to evolve like it might in a, you know, Four Seasons hotel chain where, you know, someone could look at having aspirational growth in their role and they, they take on broader responsibilities. Sometimes that role is designed exactly as it should be for that family. And so then if that's the case, what are different strategies that the family can employ to keep those individuals in those roles? So there's a couple of things, you know, to think about. Again, so that people don't get stagnant, are there internal uh, opportunities to take on more responsibility that can make the roles more enjoyable? If, or can they leverage their knowledge, you know, for example, people who support the family at their primary residence, can they take on a more active training role for one of the vacation properties? Can they actually help to ensure that the local destination property management firm that might be supporting that home is in fact employing the same standards that they would uh, in, at their primary residence? Um, there's also the issue of compensation, which sort of can, can get a revolving door going. And so we often help family offices think about that proactively rather than, I mean, obviously, if a valued employee has been with a family for 20 years, one would assume that their compensation is going to have evolved due to their tenure. But that can make it difficult as it might inflate the perceived value of a role um, to the point that then replacing them becomes extremely difficult um, or is undervalued. We encourage families to look at salary bands that are appropriate for a role and then encourage potentially bonus reward, if you will, for tenure. So it isn't inflating the role itself in terms of its its compensation or salary level, but it's creating an opportunity to incentivize tenure if that is of particular, you know, uh, interest for the family. The other is to look into other sorts of ways to help fund retirement. This is obviously not, you know, these aren't individuals that are going to be participating in profit shares or, you know, are going to have stock options. So again, being thoughtful about creating an opportunity where well-valued staff feels inclined to stay in a role um, or expand their own skill sets. And I think finally, it's important for families to realize it's a competitive playing field. Um, there are families and family offices that are tackling that very proactively, and that provides them quite a competitive advantage in the market if they can lay out for personal staff uh, a legacy plan, if you will, a growth plan, um, or a compensation plan that's, that's um, desirable. Does that answer the question? No, it certainly it does. And, and uh, you know, Judy, you, you mentioned some good points about yeah. pay banding and, and yeah. the, it's, it's generally been a opaque area around compensation yes. for family offices. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there are several folks that follow this area closely, you know, and I've certainly seen this as well, is that there's a lot more transparency about those roles and there's just a, in general professionalization around uh, um, hiring 
uh, in that Agreed. area. And I think that'll, that's, uh, that's only going to help uh, family offices and, and, and principals mm-hmm. as they're making these kinds of decisions. Agreed. So, um, Judy, from, from your perspective, you know, we, we kind of look at it as a, you know, the world today as we're in the middle of a pandemic or hopefully the end tail end of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly there are going to be future examples of where we're, we're, you know, conditions are a little different on the ground. You know, when you're looking at uh, a, you know, you know, a current pandemic stance versus an after COVID stance, families are going to continue to have events uh, and family driven events at the home. Maybe they're smaller or more virtual mm-hmm. today. You know, what are some good best practices around that? Uh, we don't have to spend too much time on the virtual end. Mm-hmm. That, that will change. Or, or do you think that mm-hmm. some of those things are going to evolve uh, into future um, family events. What are your thoughts on that, Judy? Well, it's, uh, um, well, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, particularly given my own, you know, history and interest in supporting, um, you know, significant events for families such as this, whether they're milestone celebrations or they're business-related political or uh, philanthropic gatherings. you know, this has been such a, such a surreal period of, you know, on the personal level, right? Weddings are being postponed, you know, people are proceeding with, with, with a private ceremony and then gathering their family a year later. Um, Many, many businesses and philanthropic organizations have moved to virtual formats, but I remain optimistic that um, given, you know, the human need to connect, uh, that we will see a resurgence and a return, albeit informed by all that we've learned during COVID about how to gather relatively safely. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, that the, the impacts of COVID are really um, causing families to think about why, how, when, frequency of gathering, right? A lot of, you know, like all of us, we kind of get into a pattern. There's things that we do um, on an annual basis or a routine basis that we sort of just do automatically or because we feel it's expected. Um, Certainly uh, causing a great deal of introspection in terms of, you know, how does one do that? One of the things that's also um, perplexing uh, is, you know, celebrations of life. Um, you know, when when there is a loss, how are how are people coming together to mourn that or celebrate? Um, all to say that those are um, new conversations that are that are being held, and um, families are wrestling with that. As I think, um, you know. We all are. Um, Anne, any thoughts you want to add to that? For it's a t- it's a tough tough subject. It is, and with with the pandemic right now, that's one that's kind of constantly constantly evolving. I don't think we've seen anything that's a specific you know trend as uh, no, as yet. other than other than virtual you other know than uh, virtual. trying yeah. But even even within that, there's you know there's mm-hmm. the variety of ways in which you can do that. Probably the the need for um, 
the event manager to to change their choreography skills, I guess, in, in, in mm-hmm. being able to make those virtual um, celebrations as, as effective and as, you know, given the, given the event that's occurring, as stress-free as possible, as anxiety-free as possible is, is important. That's right. And, and it wasn't exactly the question um, that you asked, but um, it is, we are seeing also um, significant amount of discussion around what does, how has COVID affected close-in private service delivery? Um, you know, like all of us, right? Families sort of locked it down. And so it's been a real conundrum to think through, you know, what levels of continued close-in personal support is appropriate and safe for both those that are delivering it as well as those that are receiving it. Um, It's been an interesting six months in watching families calibrate and often have sort of uh, streamlined or downsized the degree of close-in support um, or have had to think through strategies. We're seeing a lot more interest in live-in positions um, than we have seen previously, um, such that the the quarantining period is is a little easier to manage. Um, This is a, it's a profound change um, to how these complex uh, residences are supported. Um, And I think this is something that, you know, by early next year, I think we'll have an even better, better handle on, um, but it's, it's certainly being um, wrestled with real time. I think you make an interesting point there, Judy, on the live-in uh, mm-hmm. function that, that certainly families that I, I work with here and abroad, that that's been a, a continuous theme uh, mm-hmm. about having folks uh, much, much closer and uh, that, that proximity mm-hmm. factor, um, especially for some of those vital services. So that, that's an interesting, Agreed. um, that's an mm-hmm. interesting point. Mm-hmm. And uh, from your perspective, I think one of the areas, you know, obviously COVID is part of this, but security, you know, risk management and privacy uh, are certainly areas that family offices think about, uh, you know, quite often. Uh, and families of this particular wealth try to do everything they can to minimize their uh, public profile um, in many areas. I mean, how have you worked with families to best manage this, especially when, you know, we're, we're getting into a, a world now where every, uh, where there's a lot of data, a lot of uh, digital exhaust um, and, you know, virtual virtualization uh, that certainly probably doesn't help those factors. How have you seen and families do a better job of keeping private security in mind in, in, in this day and age? Well, I'll probably um, toss this ball <clears throat> back over to, to Judy, because I think especially given the focus on on staffing, this becomes really a critical issue. And um, we were talking um, earlier about, you know, the, the rise of social media and um, how that has sort of forced new, the development of, of, of new protocols. And I think one of the things that all of us grapple with is keeping our personal life separated from our work life. And in, uh, when you're dealing with a, a, you know, wealthy families and their staff, you're dealing now with separating two personal lives from someone's work life. Um, and how is that done? And are, are people using um, two separate phones? Are they, are they segregating um, you know, their email? Uh, there are a number of issues like that. And we encourage families 
to um, certainly work with their um, their insurance providers to understand really where their risk is, um, especially when it comes to cybersecurity, um, and and also just to understand where reputational risk may be involved. Um, to work with their security uh, provider to to see what can be can be done there and to ha- get their help, their professional help in setting up you know appropriate protocols. Um, Judy. No, I I was going to say, no, I I think you hit right on it. When uh, it's interesting that when COVID um, really took hold and uh, everyone, you know, sort of working from home, which we suspect will be a trend that um, won't change anytime terribly soon, that really uh, threw a wrench. even though it's this 24-7, 365 mentality in terms of supporting families, you know, people usually were either went to work and then they took their phone, they monitored and they came home. Well, now they're working from home. And so again, as Anne referenced, the, the, the ability to have a private versus a, you know, your personal computer, but now you're you're doing all of your work from home. And so people are multitasking. It really has raised the complexity level. And many of our security partners talk about that. Um, And we encourage our families to, you know, be really thoughtful about what does this mean, right? Now people are printing on a home printer. They're using their own Wi-Fi networks. And, you know, are things being... Uh, secured to the degree that they were in the professional or the, you know, home, the, the client, if you will, the principal's home environment. So I, I, that's a that's a particularly um, sensitive topic right now. The other is in um, the protocols that are in place, as Anne alluded, for non-disclosure agreements and background investigations for either new staff or uh, service providers. Often families sort of draw a line, they think differently about the rigor involved in screening their personal employees than they do about the uh, service providers that often have as much, if not more, access to sensitive spaces in a family's (laughs) ecosystem. When you think about, you know, folks that are in your um, home working on technology systems or complex mechanical, they're in private spaces. Um, So we really encourage a a fresh review. And again, another example of looking to outside counsel to audit, test, and verify um, how security and um, information protection is is uh, occurring um, and really encouraging uh, organizations to simply not compromise. I mean, the, the risks are great and the protocols that can be put in place are relatively simple, but it's, it's bringing in agnostic and informed outside counsel um, is often uh, really the best way to get a, a realistic sense of how um, how the organization is doing and protecting not only the privacy of the principals, but of, of the many individuals who, who support them. And, and, and certainly, uh, Judy, you know, you mentioned some of the tech, technology mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. That, that could come up, and certainly from the risk side. What about mm-hmm. innovations uh, 
mm. in technology that you think could be helpful um, well, and that you've seen have, have worked uh, for this space and may, maybe some things that are coming over the horizon in this area? Yeah, happy to. Um, Anne and I have watched this very closely over our careers, and we have had a long, um, unsatisfied hunger for a technology platform that was specifically designed to support um, the challenges of managing these complex assets and documenting all of the service delivery and press and owner preference um, processes that um, one would imagine is so um, important in this space. Um, and we're very excited actually to have um, recently developed a, a very strong, robust strategic partnership with a new uh, service provider in the space. Um, and this is a, a state space is the name of the platform. And we are intimately involved in helping provide thought partnership with the uh, with the founder, Jonathan Fishbeck and his team, um, in terms of the continued evolution of the platform. Um, we've, for many, many years, looked to um, find a solution to really accomplish four things, and we think this platform's done it, um, is to give ownership of assets back to the owners. In other words, the owner reaches out to a team and says, hey, can you give me some information about this particular thing? And there's sort of resounding silence that occurs as a well-meaning team busily goes about trying to, you know, unearth that information. Um, we're, as we've mentioned many times today, looking to prevent the loss of tribal knowledge associated with staff transitions really to provide a central repository um, of inf information, an archive or a library for secure permission-based um, sharing of documents with staff and trusted advisors. And finally, to really help solve the data collection conundrum that has been a real challenge for, you know, for earlier iterations. Um, and so we believe that a state space has got a great, um, great platform, it's intuitive, it's interactive, um, and we are, we have our, our hands in, you know, in deep in, in expressing all of, you know, our long desired functionality and, um, you know, might be an interesting topic for another day, but, um, you know, being able to create a centralized place where both sides of the family office um, as well as uh, principals can access information, receive assignments, task calendars, you know, really a, a network for keeping everyone connected, um, we really think is a game changer. And we're excited um, to be a, a partner to a state space as they are uh, coming onto market. Fantastic. Well, uh, Right around the, our our final question for a wrap up, and this is you know more of a reflective one uh, for the both of you, and I'd love your 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 thoughts on this. And it's it's really about lessons learned, you know, for the estate management industry. Uh, you know, things that you wish you uh, had known, you know, you know, based on experience from ten mm -hmm. or twenty years ago that you could bring to today. Um, and what that what that kind of looks like, and and how you think that's going to change in the future. Well, Anne, I think I'll 
I'll jump in first on that, and then I'll I'll let you um, share from your perspective. <clears throat> For me, it's an easy answer, um, and I I often find myself telling this story. But um, you know, I, I often say, if I knew then what I knew now, um, is to tell the truth, push back, and offer long term growth strategies, even when you know that knows is not necessarily what the principal might like to hear. Um, the, the individuals who find their way to this niche space are generally very service-oriented. They, uh, they are interested in solving problems. They're interested in delivering service. And those expectations understandably continually elevate. And we've experienced this ourselves, and we've certainly seen it with so many of our colleagues, that there is this, this desire to please today at the expense of being able to do so tomorrow. And that sometimes pushing back and saying, okay, we're going to hit the pause button. We're going to, yes, for example, I might be able to take on those additional responsibilities, but is it the highest and best use of my particular skills? And does it meet the family's need? Um, I would say that, that that topic in and of itself is the biggest lesson learned to, you know, be brave. Um, if, if, you know, you think that there's a better, smarter way, or if, or if an organization sees that it's being pulled um, and where there is a vulnerability that's being exposed, um, to speak about it, to not hide it and, and not view that as a failure, but rather view that as a strength that, you know, the analytic skills of the team has identified a potential weakness. Um, great companies, you know, get better when they do that. And I don't think that supporting a family is really any different. Um, Anne? So I'll let you take I would, it from there. So, <laughs> Go so, ahead. So summarizing a little bit, the speaking truth to power and, and watching yeah. and watching scope creep. Exactly. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> and then and add, from your perspective. And I would I would add to that bad news early. Um, yep. <laughs> well, it goes a little bit to the, the truth to power, but um, you know, bad news early is and no surprises. Minimizing mm -hmm. the surprises. I think also understanding that. Every family is unique. There is no um, boilerplate approach. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody who's had great success working for one family may not find a similar level of success working for another because they are all so very, very different. Um, and it's surprising how often just that alone is misunderstood. I think also just because a family can doesn't necessarily mean wants to. They have the same diversity in their um, value system as does anybody. Um, you know, we all have our weird idiosyncratic value thresholds where, you know, there's certain things that I just will not, regardless of whether I have the means to do so or not, I will just not pay over and above a certain amount. Well, you know, families are, families of means have those same kind of value thresholds and they're going to be very, uh, very different one family uh, to the next. And so understanding those and being able to, to communicate in your role as a surrogate for the owner, those kinds of um, value differentiators is going to oftentimes be a key, a key part of your role and, and um, a key way 
for you to be successful on behalf of um, the family that you are working for. So uh, would it be safe to say transparency and, and you know, minding, uh, sweat the small stuff, the, ins- yeah. the idiosyncrasies that come up? Right, right. And be mindful of, um, you know, I think protect. We always say that we want to be, you know, as good a custodian of our um, clients and families, you know, resources as if, you know, as if they were our own. And I think right. that's something that um, we, we definitely, when we're speaking with new staff, um, and when we were speaking with families, we that's something that's a value we definitely look for and want to communicate. No, and you know, and from your perspective, you you mentioned that families are all very different. Um, but I think today, you know, while they're different, some of the the best practices that you and Judy outlined uh, throughout our conversation today show that there's some good ways to do things uh, and better ways to do things as. Um, as a practice across, you know, the specialty that you both focus on. So I, I really appreciate, you know, your, your time and your, your insights uh, from both of you today. So thank you. Uh, and, and Judy, uh, you know, we certainly covered a, a lot of ground and uh, I do appreciate our, our conversation. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests, or if you have any questions, do send us an email to family office at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more in your inbox and learn about how we help family offices. And that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer to to listen to. And, you know, thanks again uh, to my two guests and thanks to all of you for joining us today. That's it. And check back for a new podcast next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.